It is a great honor for me this morning to introduce the Reverend Dr. Cynthia Rigby. Cindy currently serves as the W.C. Brown Professor of Theology at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. She earned her MDiv and PhD here at Princeton Seminary. Now, her dissertation here was entitled, The Real Word Really Became Real Flesh, Karl Barth's Contribution to a Feminist Incarnational Christology. Now, I know you're going to want to ask her to unpack that later. Uh, since then, her scholarly work has been focused on putting reformed theologies in conversation with liberation theologies in a way that speaks to the contemporary church and the world. She is the co-editor of the nine-volume Connections commentary series. And her most recent book, which I think she's selling here at the conference, you can get your copy hot off the press, uh, is entitled Holding Faith, A Practical Introduction to Christian Doctrine. This book is characteristic of her teaching and scholarship because it asks the so what question of the essential tenets of our faith. One of the reviewers of this book said, right now there is no one teaching theology and preparing students for ministry better than Cynthia Rigby. So those of you who attended her seminar yesterday already know why that is. Her list of accomplishments is impressive and I could name many more here, but I will simply leave you with a little known fact about Cindy Rigby, which is she starred in the movie The Muppets Take Manhattan. She was one of the puppets in the scene where Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog get married. So if that's not impressive, I don't know what is. Uh, please join me in welcoming Cindy Rigby. It's such an honor to be here. Um, uh, you've all made me think of so many things, but one of them is feminist mentoring. If I can use the F word, I think it's safe to use the F word with, with y'all. I'm a originally a New Yorker, but I've been in Texas for 25 years, and y'all is better than you guys. I still fall into the you guys, but y'all, pretty inclusive. Um, but feminist mentoring is what I've been experiencing the last couple of days talking to you, learning so much from everyone here. Uh, you're a pretty awesome, uh, intimidating in some ways, in a good way, a group of uh, women, wise, uh, smart, edgy. So thank you for the many contributions you've made to, to me and my life and my mom, who's here, Ethel Rigby. Um, where are you, mom? Oh, she yeah, came along with me. Um, and walking around on campus after growing up here, kind of with the MDiv and the PhD, I remember these moments of feminist mentoring that my feminist mentors here at Princeton gave me. I remember uh, one time I was working toward comprehensive exams, and you have to do this big oral defense and comprehensive exams, and I was crossing that crosswalk, and Jane Dempsey Douglas was crossing the opposite way, and she stopped me right in the middle of the crosswalk, and she said, Cindy, I see you're gonna be uh, examined next week. She said, what I want you to do is every night as you fall asleep, imagine yourself in full command of the room. And that has stayed with me my whole career. Because, I, you know, when you're falling apart and you're worried, imagine yourself in command, in, in, uh, command of the room. And then Kathy Sackenfeld uh, rescued me when I was planning on going to Reimagining Three two weeks before defending my dissertation. She said, that might not be a good idea. <laughs> See, they do remember reimagining. Um, I also thought of Laura Mendenhall. Do you know Laura? She was the president of Columbia Seminary, that other seminary in Atlanta. Um, and she uh, was also a pastor at Westminster Church in Austin. And she one time told me, if you ever have to tell a room full of men something they don't want to hear, wear a white suit with pearls. It'll throw them off. So little tips, and feminist, feminist mentoring, unlike uh, non-feminist mentoring, isn't about dissemination. It's not about uh, an old, wise, powerful, successful man sharing his wisdom with a protege. It's about mutuality. It's about shared uh, experiences. It's the way uh, Debbie uh, did the introduction a few minutes ago. Um, so we also have to think about feminist mentoring, not only women to women, but women to men and men to women. 
right? If, if women are 50% of the population and they're equal to men, everyone has to get involved. I think we have to stop making this a girl thing um, and recognize the way men in our lives have mentored us and we also mentor men. So I've been thinking about this. This is my sales pitch because I, I want to keep thinking about how this group and other groups of women can engage in fem feminist mentoring as we enter the next 50 years uh, and, and so forth. But Wendell Dietrich at Brown University, where I was a, a student who didn't even, wasn't even sure women could be ordained, handed me a copy of Rosemary Radford's Ruther's Sexism in God Talk in 1983. Called me into his office, handed it to me, and he was the least feminist looking person you've ever seen. You know, 60 year old white guy. Handed to, he said, you might want to read this. It might have some ideas in it that we're not teaching you here. So I'm grateful for everyone here, uh, for the people in my past who I, I didn't even realize how significant that was until recently. So let's keep mentoring each other and figuring out new ways of being in community intentionally uh, for the future of the church. All right, that was the sales pitch for feminist mentoring. My talk, the long title is what we have to offer in a time of division and fear. The we I'm referring to are disciples of Jesus Christ, people who identify as Christian believers, and I'm hoping I'm not leaving anyone out in this room. I apologize if I am. Um, I, I checked to see if people were um, parts of, of other religions. I don't think anyone in the room is, so. Um, but I'd love to, love to hear from you if this doesn't resonate. The short title of my talk is Bread, Bread. So yesterday in my workshop on the Canaanite woman, we were talking about, or the Syrophoenician woman, the fact that Jesus didn't want to give her bread. He wanted to give it to the children, not to the dogs under the table. And as we know the story, the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman said, even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. Jesus had an off day. We have to say more than that about that text. But most of the time, Jesus was very into giving everyone bread. And he was always asking the disciples to give people bread. And the disciples were always worried about giving people bread because they were afraid they didn't have enough bread. They were afraid the bread would run out. They were working with a, a mentality of scarcity, of zero-sum quantity. Feed these people. Are you crazy? Five loaves, two fishes, 12 basketfuls left over. Jesus, except on his bad day with the Canaanite Syrophoenician woman, <laughs> had an understanding that bread was abundant, not a, a philosophy of scarcity, but a philosophy of God's overflowing love, God's overflowing graciousness. So a question I have in my mind is, as disciples of Jesus Christ, is Jesus asking us to share the bread that we have? Yes. Are we sharing it? And if we're not sharing it, why not? Is it because we have an understanding that bread is scarce, that if we share it, we'll run out? Is it for some other reason? <clears throat> the great missiologist D.T. Niles, he was Ceylonese, once said that Christians are people who help other people find bread. Christians are people who show people where to find bread. So I'm gonna bear witness here today. I think we know where the bread is. And I think we're called, if I can use that language, to help people see where the bread is, to help them find bread. So what I wanna talk about is this. We have bread. We know where the bread is to heal division, to restore unity, to restore peace. We know the path to restoration. We have bread that we break in communion that everyone shares, a shared loaf. This is our theology, this is our worship, this is a unifying symbol, that we share this loaf of bread. What's that about? How do we share bread with the whole world that is broken? 
We have power to disarm the demonic. We have the power to overwhelm, to overpower fear. In a time of division and fear, we have the power to share bread and overcome division. We have the power to hold bread, to pass out loaves of bread so that people can overcome their fear. I think of the image of children who were survivors of the Holocaust being given bread to sleep with at night. I read about that recently. I've seen people nodding. Uh, they were afraid they wouldn't have food the next day, and someone had the idea, give them loaves of bread, allow them to sleep with bread so that they won't fear being hungry. We can give bread. We can hold bread ourselves. That's the first step. Self-care. Are we holding bread as we sleep? What does that look like? What, is, what are the resources we have in the Christian tradition to hold bread, to live fearlessly? And then finally, we have bread that promises a new day, a day that isn't characterized by divisiveness and isn't characterized by fear. Let me unpack this a little bit. So we have a path to restoration. We know where the path is to restoration, to healing divisiveness. I'll tell you what it is, forgiveness. And we've got to work on this doctrine. I'm a systematic theologian. I'll, I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to sin boldly and love God more boldly still. We have to work on the doctrine of forgiveness. We've done a lousy job with this doctrine. Okay. But we believe in this cycle. We have a remedy in Christian theology to divisiveness, to sin, repentance, forgiveness, justice, reconciliation. That's kind of the order, I think. We repent, we forgive, we do justice, we're reconciled. Okay. So what, what has been the problem with the doctrine of forgiveness? Well, one, We have put the burden of forgiveness on victims and survivors of sin. We've said, forgive and forget, right? You've got to get over this. We've got to move on. Why do we need Holocaust museums? That was so long ago. Why do we need the new African-American history and culture museum in Washington, D.C.? That was a long time ago. It wasn't us, right? Why do we need to talk about sexism anymore? There are plenty of women. Look at them all. Right? <laughs> We're including them. Get over it already. Let's move on. The Dutch Reformed Church said uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, we're sorry already. We're sorry for apartheid. You got to get over it. You got to move on. And the Kairos document was written. This is something to check out. K-A-R. I-R-O-S, the inbreaking of the spirit. The Kairos document said, there is no forgiveness without justice. Forgiveness can't be the burden of those who have been damaged, marginalized, abused, oppressed. Forgiveness is a dynamic in which we all part participate, particularly the perpetrator, per perpetrators of injustice, those who have done wrong. Elie Wiesel was one of the victims of Bernie Madoff. Remember that 10 years ago? Madoff stole all kinds of money from everyone, including a million or so dollars from a retribution fund that, that uh, Elie Wiesel had set up. And reporters, after Bernie Madoff was put in jail, came to Elie Wiesel and said, do you forgive Bernie Madoff? You've written a lot about forgiveness. Do you forgive him? And Wiesel said wisely, it is not for me to forgive him. It is for him to ask me for forgiveness. And the headline in many newspapers said, Ilya Wiesel refuses to forgive Madoff. The man who writes about forgiveness can't forgive. The reporter went back to Ilya Wiesel and said, well, do you think he should be punished? I love Wiesel because he doesn't mince words. You know, even when he's cornered, he just says what he thinks, said what he thinks. I'm sorry he's passed away. Yeah. Wiesel said in response to the reporter, yes, I think he should be punished. Well, what should the punishment be? 
This is going to make a good story. Wiesel said, I think the faces of those who Bernie Madoff robbed should be projected on the screen of his cell in solitary confinement for 24-7, for, for 10 years, I think he said, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 10 years, projected on the wall of, of his cell. And the reporter said, look at this. Ilya Wiesel wants to punish Bernie Madoff. Well, I think what Madoff was thinking, I mean, what uh, Ilya Wiesel was thinking is that this is the best hope for Bernie Madoff to be restored. That, that the victims of his sin would be humanized for him. In the same way in a Holocaust museum, you have rooms full of shoes. And when you go in the rooms full of shoes, you realize these are actual human beings who are killed, human beings like you and I. So he's, we need a doctrine of forgiveness. We have a doctrine of forgiveness, actually, that, that calls us to, um, to, to be transformed, to, to be humanized, to see each other as human beings, to be changed. Are we preaching that doctrine? Are we preaching repentance of sins? Are we, are we preaching being changed, being restored? Um, there's a story in the Bible in Matthew 18, and it's troubling. It's also in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Did Jesus really mean that? The disciples asked Jesus that. This is how you should pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Did you really mean that? Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. There was a king and a servant, and, and the servant owed a lot of money, and the king forgave him, and then he went out and grabbed the other guy by the neck and said, pay back what you owe. The king heard about it. Guess how the king heard about it? People around the servant, fellow servants, didn't say, this is none of our business, but ran back to the king and told him injustice had been done. Done that lately? Told on anyone? Right? That's part of being in community, telling on, on other people in a certain sense when injustice is being done. The king takes the servant, throws him in jail till he can pay back everything that he owes. Did God take did the king take back forgiveness? Does God take back forgiveness? Is there really a contingency? Ooh, these are hard theological questions. This is why it's fun to do theology. Um, my, my argument would be that forgiveness cannot happen until we step in it and are changed by it. That servant wasn't forgiven because he grabbed the other guy by the neck. He wasn't transformed until the Dutch Reformed Church changed their ways, until Bernie Madoff still in jail, right, uh, realizes the humanity of the other. There's no forgiveness, because forgiveness without justice isn't forgiveness. Desmond Tutu wrote that there's no future without forgiveness, but there's also no forgiveness without justice. How do we rethink these, this doctrine that is central to our faith? This is not uh, peripheral to what we believe, this idea of forgiveness. Another concept um, related to forgiveness that we've not done a good job with is we talk about the association between forgiveness and forgetting. So forgive and forget. Well, we've been talking a lot at this conference about history, story, embodiment, right? Authenticity. Maybe that's not the best word anymore, but story, embodiment. If you forget all the ways I've messed up, you don't really know me. You know what you're called to? You're called to get to know me so well that you know my weaknesses, you know my sins, and you believe in me anyway. You lift me up holy and without blemish. Did she just quote from Ephesians chapter 5? Isn't that the chapter that talks about wives submitting to the husbands? Right? Yes. But, but if you think about it paradigmatically, I mean parabolically and not paradigmatically, you with me? Not as a heterosexist, but, but this is what we're all to do for each other. Then you lift me up knowing who I am and believing in, in my created beauty and redeemed beauty, even as you remember very well all the things I've done wrong. Now that's a lot harder to really know each other. But when you remember, when you remember and, and hold each other up, when we remember and hold each other up, we're able to hold each other to account better. We just forget about things. 
It's impossible anyway, by the way, to forget about things. But it's also not, um, not recommended. The, the amazing thing about God is God remembers everything and loves us anyway. This is our confession. But that doesn't mean those things are gone. They're part of our histories. So how do we talk about forgiveness in a way that includes remembering? The Holocaust Museums, the African-American uh, Culture and History Museum, and our stories. How does forgiveness heal us while helping us remember? <clears throat> we need to work on this doctrine. A second idea is that we have the power to disarm the demonic. This isn't a word I use too often, but it seems apropos these days. Oh, a couple of people laughed. What do you mean by demonic? Well, have you read the paper yet this morning? I think maybe, um, uh, you know, I'm Presbyterian. <clears throat> we don't talk a lot about devils, except on the week after 9-11. We sang, I, I preached in Flower Mound, New, Flower Mound Texas, the, the Sunday after 9-11. And everyone was dressed in red, white, and blue, Presbyterian Church. And we sang, a mighty fortress is our God. And you've never heard Presbyterians sing that hymn with more gusto than on the Sunday after 9-11. Although this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed God's truth to triumph o'er us. Who ask who that might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same. And he will win the battle. Good Christus Victor. Atonement theory. I'm saying we might want to relook at that. <laughs> Not as a substitute for substitute, interesting word when you're talking about atonement. <laughs> Get into that. Um, there's some power there in naming the demonic. Um, James Cone, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, um, names the demonic uh, quite loudly. And this is what he says. He says, the weight of the biblical view of suffering is not on the origin of evil. That's sometimes something that theologians get bogged down in. The origin of evil. Why did God make everything this way? Cohn says, it's not on the origin of evil, but on what God in Christ has done about evil. That's the bread. What God in Christ has done about evil. James Cohn. That's the bread we can point to, we, can, we should hold on to, we should hand to people. What God in Christ has done about evil? And he says what that is, fortunately. I'll read to you from Cohn. Cohn says, God became human in Jesus Christ. John 1:14. the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Man. And defeated decisively. I wish it were more decisive, but I'm going with Cohn on this. Defeated decisively, this is a confessional, hopeful statement, defeated decisively the power of sin, death, and Satan, thereby bestowing upon us the freedom to struggle against suffering that destroys humanity. You know why we don't like talking about the demonic? I, I think it's because sometimes religious people talk about the demonic as an excuse for not acting as human agents of justice in the world, right? The devil's alive and well on planet Earth, right? Not our fault, we just have to hold on tight until Jesus comes back and you might be left behind if you don't do X, Y, and Z, but I'm going. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. <laughs> um, rather than using this idea of the demonic as a, as a way of justifying escapism. Cohn uses it to say, this is why we need to get busy and not be bogged down and not give up and be encouraged and encourage one another and encourage the world. Are we encouraging the world? Are we encouraging the world or are we, sp I'm going to point at myself. I spend a lot of time going, oh, I can't believe it. These days, especially, you know, it's understandable, right? 
but what word of encouragement, what loaf of bread do I have to hand to you, to hand to others, to hand to my students, to hand to my family, hand to my children who've never um, known a different uh, world than the one we're so distraught about right now. Um, the only one we are to fear is God. Scripture tells us this. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we fear God, there's no reason to fear anyone else because that God has entered into our shoes, has entered into our bones and into our flesh. Irenaeus put the words of Adam to Eve in the mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus looking us in the eye and saying to us, you are bone of my bone and flesh of our fle my flesh. Carl Barth, I mention him now and then, I went to Princeton for a long time. Right? Carl Barth says we need not be afraid of God, the one who we fear, because that God is the judge who was judged in our place. I don't think the father needed the son to die in order to be able to forgive us, in case anyone's worried about that. Uh, it's a very important topic that we probably won't get to today. But we look at that cross, we see Jesus on that cross, and say, my goodness, I don't have to go there. No one should have to go there. It's wrong when anyone is hanged or lynched or, um, or harmed. Jesus took that on so that we don't have to. Um, Barman Declaration, 1934. Bard and the Lutherans talking about would-be lords. There's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, not Hitler. He came to the United States, by the way, and said that the fashion industry was demonic. Made a big deal about it, talked about it a lot. The fashion industry, he said, was demonic because it kept women constantly having to think about their clothing. See what I have on today? Not bad, right? I have to have a different outfit tomorrow. Good thing, I, you know, we only had a three-day conference because I wouldn't have been able to fit all my clothes. I mean, you know, how, he thought it was demonic because it kept women from thinking about who they were as children of God, he said. Um, Jackie Grant said, in calling Jesus Christ Lord, black women are saying that the white slaveholder isn't. She says this in black women, uh, white woman's Christ, black woman's Jesus. She's talking about overpowering the demonic by appeal to the lordship of Christ, the victory of Christ, the sovereignty of God, which relativizes all other would-be lords. That's the loaf of bread. Do we hold on to that? Are we too sophisticated in our faith to hold on to the bread? Are we holding on to it? Are we handing that out? Are we sharing that? <clears throat> um, how do we uh, overcome our fear? How do we claim the lordship of Christ in a way that all other earthly lords are relativized? Well, we need to also name the principalities and powers for what they are. So I'm getting a little away from um, thinking about Satan. I think the demonic is uh, systemic distortion, but it's so salient. It's, it may as well be substantive. Does that make sense? Uh, I kind of buy Augustine's idea that evil is the absence of good, but absence can, can function substantively. It's so horrific. So um, we need to name the principles and, pow pr and, and powers for what they are. So part of holding on to the bread, what happens when we hold on to the bread and we know Jesus is Lord, is we feel secure enough to be able to just go out there and say the truth, speak the truth. There's a wonderful quote from many wonderful quotes from Harry Potter. One is where Professor, Professor Dumbledore tells Harry Potter to stop avoiding saying the name of Voldemort. I bet someone, people are nodding so hard, I bet you could quote this. He says to Harry Potter, always use the proper name for things. Fear of a name increases a fear of the thing itself. 
do we have the courage? Can we hold on tight enough to our bread? Maybe we can leave it in the bedroom and just get super powered in the evening so we're not walking around with it. Or maybe we need to walk around with it. I don't know how this metaphor is going. But <laughs> do we have the courage to name Voldemort? I suggest a book by Linda Barry, 100 Demons. You know Linda Barry? wonderful uh, writer, secular writer. It's not Christian-y, but she is a genius. Uh, not but, she's a genius, and she's a genius. She, she writes all these creative books on painting and, and writing. Anyway, look her up, Linda Berry. She has a book, 100 Demons, where she teaches you how to paint your demons. Name your demons, your personal demons. And she gives examples from her own life, 100 Demons. Luther named the demonic. He wrote, uh, when he was writing the commentary on Galatians, he said, hang on a minute, I see Satan on the other side of the room. I got to throw an inkwell. Threw an inkwell at Satan, went back to writing. <laughs> Thrown any inkwells lately? Are we beyond that? I ask myself, right? Did he believe Satan was really in the room? Going back to James Cone, that's not really the point. Functionally, if you think Satan's there, you're going to act as though Satan's there, whatever Satan is, whatever the demonic is. They're going to control how we think. You're going to, whether it's true or not, we're controlled by a lot of things that aren't true. That's why we have to throw the inkwell and remember what is true. Gutierrez, this is a little more complicated point, controversial. Gustavo Gutierrez says that we need, in naming the demonic, to be more open to acknowledging the absence of God. Let me explain this. This is C Cindy's um, uh, interpretation of Gutierrez, so don't blame him for, I think it's his idea in my words. We in the United States, in the Western world, are very fond of the idea that God is with us no matter what, for good reasons. And God is with us no matter what, don't worry too much. But um, we, we, uh, when we were kids, often had the poster of the footprints on the beach on our wall. Anyone know what I mean? Everyone had the poster. So, so it's a picture of someone who's walking down the beach, and they're at a distance, and, and they see footprints, two sets of footprints, but at some point they converge, and there's only one set of footprints. And there's a little poem. It says something like... Um, Thanks for walking with me down the beach. Uh, but uh, for a long time, I didn't understand why there was, in some places, one set of footprints. And now I realize that you didn't abandon me. You lift me up and carried me. I'm not against that message. But what Gutierrez might say to us is, have you ever entertained the possibility that there was one set of footprints because you walked away from God? Maybe we have to think about that. And Gutierrez is so biblical. He goes in and talks about the Israelites leaving behind the Ark of the Covenant. And he talks, yeah, he talks about Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And says, uh, well, Jesus was really naming something real there. He wasn't just uh, off track. It wasn't a bad day like with the Syrophoenician woman, Canaanite woman. He was saying, this isn't it. So, so here's the point Gutierrez is making. When we say God is with us, that statement, that confessional claim has content. To say God is with us is to claim what uh, Dr. Towns was talking about yesterday, the created beauty of the world. God is with us. God is not abandoned. It's to claim incarnation, John 1.14. So when we don't see um, beauty, when we don't see God's will being done. We can't, if we simply say, well, God is with us, it's a kind of meaningless, it's almost like a superstitious um, amulet or something. It's an empty statement. Gutierrez says, it's when we say, no, this is not it. This is not right. This is not what it looks like. No. That we're actually invoking God's presence. It's the most faithful way of claiming God's presence to say, this is not it. When uh, the school shooting at Columbine years ago happened, 
uh, a girl was shot by a, a classmate in the library of the school building. And he asked her right before he shot her, do you believe in God? She said yes, and he shot her and killed her. And five minutes later, uh, Christians around the world were saying, wow, God was with her. She is an example to all of us of being faithful, even at that last moment. And I don't want to take away from that. But I think what Gutierrez would say, and I agree with this, is can't, couldn't we just for a couple days say, where was God? Where was God? God's not here. This isn't it. This isn't what it looks like. This is the demonic. We've got to hold on to bread. We've got to look for something different than this. Because we believe to say God is with us has content. So how do, we, how do we, this is really tricky for pastors, uh, but um, probably necessary, right? How do, you, how do you say, where are you, God? Maybe not go in and say to your congregations, I think God is absent today. That's not the point. <laughs> but, but to say, where are you, God? There, there's a note that my, my uncle uh, Bill was with the FAA, and he was first on site years ago with an airplane crash in Pittsburgh where a lot of people were killed. I see a lot of nods. You remember that? It was maybe 20 years ago. And um, he said there were body parts strewn all over. He, he was really traumatized by it. And I read an article in the New York Times. Uh, a, a, a reporter had gone to churches that following Sunday to see what Christians would say. Right? Sometimes people actually come to us. We talk about the demise of the church, how the numbers are decreasing. Maybe we should be wondering why these people are coming back week after week. We got people sitting there hoping that we give them bread, right? This is a joyful thing. But so, so he went to get bread and was disappointed. And I remember specifically he talked about going into a Methodist church and he heard a sermon about the wheat and the tares and all we can do is plan, and there are weeds and this oblique sermon as though um, it's a mystery and maybe God wanted to wipe out. It was very vague. And then he went to a Presbyterian church, and the Presbyterian minister said, we, we not, need not be angry at God, but just look at where God is present. God is present in the community of everyone helping each other, and he felt empty. And he went to a black Baptist church, and the pastor got up and, and looked up and started praying and said, where were you on Tuesday night, right? If we're going to go out and work for justice in the world, if we're going to give people bread, if we're going to overpower the demonic, we need to name things as they are, the way the lament psalmists do too. Psalm 42, Psalm 44, rouse yourself, O God, why are you sleeping? Um, by the way, the Lord's Prayer has a little of this in it. We pray the Lord's Prayer so habitually. Our Father who art in heaven, how be it, thy kingdom come, thy will be it. Think of the imperative there, thy kingdom come. We've been praying this prayer for 2,000 years already. Show us the money, God. Stomp our foot. Thy kingdom come. Simone Weil, W-E-I-L. She says we, we, we scare ourselves. We should scare ourselves when we demand of God that God's kingdom come. And that's why we quickly follow up with, thy will be done, right? <laughs> but do we think of it that way? Do we think of it that way? Well, having courage, overpowering the demonic. And then, by the way, then we get into the bread. The bread. Give us this day the, our daily bread. Um, we also need, in addition to uh, naming the demonic in our lives, being clear uh, and honest about the absence of God in, as a way of understanding the character of God's presence, to think about the demonic in relation to institutions. So I'm talking systematic theology again, not only about personal sin, but systemic sin, right? And I've recently discovered William Stringfellow. Anyone know? William Stringfellow, who wrote in the 60s. It's hilarious to read because it really applies to today. Um, but he talks about signs of the demonic in institutions um, and watching for these. And I would suggest we need to do this not only in relation to our government, but in relation to our churches. Um, and, and, and be ready, to going back to the forgiveness point, to repent of our own complicity in systemic injustice. It's easy to point 
to others. But, you know, it all starts with us and all that. Um, but he says there are three indicators. One is the denial of truths. The denial of truth. The denial of truth, actually. Uh, and I think of Stephen Colbert's truthiness. It sounds true enough, truthiness. The second is double speak and overtalk. Um, so the best example of this, I think, is uh, George Orwell's 1984 example, war is peace. War is peace. And, and so the powers that be tell us that enough times, war is peace, war is peace, war is And you start to believe it. Um, well, war isn't peace. It is not. War is not peace. Are we bold enough to, to name the demonic in that, that twistedness? And um, sec uh, thirdly, secrecy and bouts of expertise. So when institutions start saying, trust us, you don't have to know everything. Trust us. You don't need to be involved in this decision. Trust us. There's more to this than you could possibly understand. Trust me. Trust me. I'm working so hard. I'm so tired, and I'm not appreciated. You get I get intimidated when people say that. I, but what have you done? If they say to me, Why, what, what gives you the right to have an opinion? I've been working on this. Trust me. You've got to trust me. Be suspicious. Name the demonic. Name Voldemort. And finally, pray the Lord's Prayer. The whole, uh, I mentioned a minute ago, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, stomping our feet. Um, let's pray it differently. Let's really hear it. Let's really indwell it. It's radical. Radical. So speaking of radical, the, the next thing we have to offer, so we've talked about Sharing one loaf heals divisiveness. Sharing one loaf, and, the, and I'm talking about the doctrine of forgiveness, repenting, forgiving, being transformed, renewed, reconciling. Just as there are one, there's one loaf, there are many members, right? Breaking that bread, the analogy of the Lord's table. Um, secondly, we have uh, bread to help people overcome their fear the fearfulness of the world. Hold on to that bread. Remember, Jesus is Lord. God is sovereign. That overpowers lordly power, all lordly powers and gives us the strength and the, and the courage to name the demonic and counter it. Finally, we have to offer the world the possibility of a new day, a new day that is characterized by unity and lack of fear. I wonder if we believe that. Let me try to persuade you in uh, just five minutes, okay? We have, <clears throat> we know where the new day is. It's in God's promise. And that new day is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. A day when we are no longer afraid. We are no longer divided. Where all people eat bread, daily bread where no one is excluded. I think we've tried to make Christianity more marketable by compromising on the impossibility of what has been promised. I think we'd rather be heroes as ministers sometimes. I know this is more a men thing, but maybe it's a woman thing too, than fools. So I'm thinking here of a, of a quote from Soren Kierkegaard in Fear and Trembling, one of my favorite books. Um, Kierkegaard is just amazed at Abraham. Who can be an Abraham? Who can be brought out to see the stars and believe that he's going to have a wallet full of grandbaby pictures in his old age? Who can believe that? And uh, Kierkegaard says, the one who expects what is possible is great, but the one who expects what is impossible, dash, the one whose hope takes the form of madness, that one is the greatest of all. What we have to offer is mad hope, insane hope. You know what we believe? I'll tell you what we believe. I don't know if I believe it, but we believe it. <laughs> Lord, I believe, help me now my unbelief. Lions and lambs lying down together. 
every tear wiped away from every eye, the healing of bodies and souls, forgiveness of sins. We believe this is a possibility. It's not, you know, it's in the third article of the creed. What's it doing there? It should be in the God section, the Jesus section. It's in our section, right? The third article, the communion of saints, us. It's possible for us. Do I believe that? Lord, help me now, my unbelief, that it's possible to live in forgiving community. So this possibility of a new day, are, wow. are we sharing this bread with the world yet? Are we even eating it ourselves? So we live in a, in a, in a, in a culture marked by global capitalism and transactionalism. You get what you pay for. If you don't do X, Y, and Z, you'll be left behind. It's in religion too, right? Uh, we interpret the, the, the thief on the cross as only the one who, who says, uh, Lord, Lord, remember me in paradise, goes to heaven, and the other one doesn't do that, and so he obviously goes to hell. What kind of theology is that? Bart again. Bart says both of them go. The promise is to both of them, right? So we live, we live in a world in which um, it's, it's, it, everyone is replaceable. No one is irreplaceable, but we have a message. In a world where people think they're replaceable, we know, we believe, even when we don't know, right, that no one is replaceable because each one has been created beautiful in God's image, Genesis 1 and 2, yesterday, has been called by name before the foundation of the earth and is loved by God in Jesus Christ. This is, this is a healing message. This enables us to imagine something altogether new. So let me just close with this, because we need to have time for Q&A. Um, daily bread for all, imagining, playing in, and creating this new reality of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Most of us are ministers and have presided at the table with bread. We break the bread, we serve it. This is Christ's body broken for us. Well, the table is kind of like a tea party, I think. If you have kids, uh, you know about this. Even if you don't have kids, you've probably witnessed this. Kids, when they do, my kids used to love to do a tea party. They'd have to have the right uh, tablecloth for their tea party. We have this circular blue striped thing. If I couldn't find that tablecloth, They'd say, Mommy, we can't do the tea party. Well, can't you use this tablecloth? No, this is how we do it. We do it with this tablecloth. And they set it all out, and they create a space to sit down, and they set everything, and it's very important, and I have to make the tea just the right way. And they, 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 they drink it, and they eat a couple cookies, and something happens. They're not only pretending to be grown-ups, but they're showing hospitality to one another. These kids sitting around this blue striped circular blanket, and the kingdom of God break, breaks in. The kingdom of God comes to earth as it is in heaven, even in the kids' tea party, right? We go into worship, and we have to have the right tablecloth, right? And, and there's something really, I understand, believe me, I understand how annoying this is that people can't change. But thinking from the other side of it, the dear side of it. Why is that? Because this tablecloth, these things, these special cups or however we do it in our church, which is the only right way to do it because we've always done it that way, right? <laughs> Reminds them. It creates a space for the people of God to imagine. We get up with these little tiny pieces of bread. I once worked in a church where we, they got used wonder, I mean, three-day-old wonder bread and but little tiny cube of bread, and, and we say, this is the joyful feast of the kingdom of God. This takes imagination, <laughs> right? It takes imagination. We need to reclaim imagination. God, I'm not talking about imagining what we want, imagining what God wants. I'm not ta talking about desiring what we want. Desire came up yesterday, but participating in the desire of God so that God's desire becomes our desire. Because what God desires is what we not only want, but what we need. Right? Wholeness, healing, community, right? Abundant life. So how do we, how do we uh, get around that table more? 
chew that bread, drink that cup. Imagine a kingdom in which everyone is included. Everyone is fed. There's bread for all. So much, so well that it comes and it happens. Oh, man, the sermon went 20 minutes and there's communion today, right? I, I don't know the answer to this. I think about it a lot. But what should happen at the end of the worship service is people should be clinging so tightly to the edge of that table that they don't want to leave. Because the experience is supposed to be that they realize this table where there's no division, no fear, and there's plenty to go around, plenty, 12 basketfuls left over. This is the real reality of the kingdom of God, the eternal reality that we want when we say, thy kingdom come, right? Daily bread, deliverance from evil, forgiveness of sins, it's all right there. Everything I've said is right there in the Lord's Prayer. Right? We should be prying people's fingers off the table when we say, now go forth into the world. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Bring this reality out into the world, and in the words of Jean-Luc Picard, make it so. Bring this bread into the world and share it. Bring this loaf and spread the message of forgiveness. Bring this loaf, give it to people so they can sleep with it and know that Jesus is Lord and no longer be controlled by the demonic would-be lords of this world. The disciples were asked to feed, to feed the hungry, to feed people who were at Jesus' lecture. That's the other thing. He stopped his lecture. That's pretty radical. I perceive these people are hungry. I mean, it's a girl thing to do. These people need food. Um, we're Jesus' disciples. Are we going to share bread? Or are we going to uh, be worried about a paucity, a scarcity? Let us go forth and share the bread that leads to the healing of division, the overpowering of fear, and leads us to a space where we can imagine God's kingdom so well that God works in and through us. I don't mean as, by the way, passive vessels, but as real agents. I think of Mary, right, who is an actual agent of the kingdom of God. Jesus would have been different a different person if his mother was Gloria or Alice, right? <laughs> Harriet Beecher Stowe makes that uh, point. I think of um, Philippians 2 where it says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us, enabling us to will and to work for God's good purpose. It's a partnership. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Are we ready? Are we ready to go out into the world and share the bread that will lead to uh, a healing of division and fear. I think we are. Let's go do it. Thank you. Thank you.